Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Hey everybody, I trust you well and uh, are still making it through the craziness that we find ourselves in. Um, again, if you uh, are in need yourself or if you know of anybody who's in need uh, that we can help, please send us a text, drop us an email, give us a shout, whatever, and we'll do our best uh, to be involved. Our prayers go out to all those we know are already uh, suffering and in considerable difficulty through the current hardship and we just pray peace and life and health and help on them. I want to raise the issue with you today of three invented words that have become common currency within Christian circles which by even a cursory attempt at research you will find can be seen to appear nowhere in any original text of what became the Bible. In doing it, I want to blow some of those hibernation COVID cobwebs out of your mind. Some people will say, Auntie, you should leave this alone. You know, last few weeks you've been on to a winner. Uh, people just feel really lovely and encouraged, and I'm sure you do. But I also think it's important that we wrestle with this truth. And hopefully that today I can set your thinking on a way that will bring you uh, freedom and life and uh, also open up the great expanse of some further considerations that you might make. Those three words which are invented and inserted within the text of our English Bible are gospel, church and hell. The great reformer Martin Luther said way back in 1517 time or a little later, it seems a small matter to mingle the law and the gospel works and faith but it creates more mischief than a man's brain can conceive. Luther by this statement introduced to us the idea that there is mischief in the mix. Now I hope you understand that word mischief, it's when we uh, do something but don't want to get caught out uh, or we plan to do something and our plan makes it so that we can do it in a way hopefully that people won't notice what it is that we're doing that departs from uh, all the rules of uh, authenticity and correctness, but we do it anyway, mischief. And so Luther introduced the idea that there's mischief in the mix of the whole uh, church um, experience as we see it and understand it um, now. Paul, the Apostle Paul, made an appeal to Timothy. It's recorded in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. He said, be diligent, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we want to have a little diligence today. A lot of people think they're being diligent and rightly dividing the word of truth. But all we're doing is we are engaging with what we have been told is the interpretation or the model that we have been given. Uh, and then assuming because of that, that we are rightly dividing the word of truth and being diligent. But I want you to have true diligence today by making you think a little bit in a very brief talk about these three invented words and hope I can stir something in you. The first one, gospel. Uh, 
there's absolutely no need to use this sound good but misleading word. It's not necessary. It's common uh, within church circles. You know, we talk about the gospel and preaching the gospel. But why? If I were to ask your average church person um, or anyone affected by the whole process of Christianity, particularly, what does the word gospel mean? I would in 99.9% .9 of the cases get the same answer coming back. It means good news. Okay, so if you know it means good news, why not just say good news? Why invent a word that might be a very nice word, I don't know, kind of trips off the tongue or whatever. Why invent a word and think that somehow the use of that word, gospel, is better than simply the use of the two words, good news? Because that's what that word is translated from and then invented and slid into the text. See, I think the problem is that when you call something good news, it requires two things for it to qualify to be what you have said that it is. And those two things are number one, it has to be good. And number two, it has to be news. Now, I think the problem is that as mischief has crept in and there has become, in my view, a distortion of the true gospel, the true good news, it's meant that lots of the things that are being conveyed uh, and interpreted from Scripture within the Christian community are neither good nor news. And so what do we do? Well, let's substitute that word good news with another word that everybody will know what it is, but anybody who hears it won't hear those words good news. They'll hear this new word. Let's call it gospel. Oh, we're going to preach the gospel. Well, I have a problem with that. Uh, because within that gospel, so much of what is said, I would say, and I've been around this thing for all of my life, 64 years, is neither good nor news. And one of the reasons I say that is that there is a basic model by which all religions of all times, of all cultures, in all places, um, have built themselves around. And it's basically this, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. And so the whole model and makeup of those religions is... We start from the basis that the gods are angry and therefore the gods must be appeased. So why are they angry and what must we do to appease them? And then how must we live? They'd say be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. Now, here's my problem. For those in the Christian community who would claim a superior message or a superior um expression experience revelation or a superior god or or um uh, image of god my problem is that the same model just shows up over and over again god is angry god must be appeased so we come right from the beginning of not linking into a loving kind gracious god who never separates itself from humanity, that when we, 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 we begin to come to things that make God separate from us, and I can't go into all that today, that God becomes angry and that God's anger must be appeased. And so we then interpret the whole 
thing of sacrifice through that lens and then of course we interpret what the what the appearance and death and resurrection of Jesus was about through that lens that it becomes an appeasement for an angry God uh, which again has problems because it's like God is angry at what he created and so God has to bring into what he created himself in the form of what he created so that he being himself in the form of what he created in the body of Jesus can appease himself and make himself not angry with the ones that he created so that now he will feel okay and that because of doing that he can somehow get on with the creation that he made and blessed in the beginning now now I'm putting it to you in that way because I want you to think about when you look at that model it comes from the idea that gods are angry the gods must be appeased and then of course from that we get you'll be rewarded for doing good if you do the right things if you say the right thing you pray the right prayer you'll be rewarded if you don't you'll be punished and so other doctrines and ideas have come up around that now here's my problem with that if that is the case then then christiana she should not claim that the, the god of christianity the father of jesus was called the abba the daddy the father of jesus and all of that should not claim that this is different to any other idea of the divine or of humanity or of God uh, or of God's dealings with humanity. Because if it goes from the premise that God is angry, God must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. What's the difference between that and, for example, the Incas, you know, the smoking volcano? The gods are angry. Uh, they're displeased with us because we have not behaved correctly. So what must we do? We must appease the god with a sacrifice. So we find a young virgin girl and we throw the young virgin girl into the volcano to stop the volcano erupting, hopefully to appease the anger of the god so that then if we live right, we'll be rewarded for doing good, we'll be punished for doing bad. Listen, if you think about it, the sad danger is that what we have perceived the Christian gospel to be can be no different to that unless we have a different model and a different premise from which we come. So why would you substitute good news with gospel? I'll tell you why, because if you call it gospel, you can get away with things that are neither good nor news. But if we allow it to be good news, it creates permission in the mind of the hearer to ask, is this good is this news if it's good and it's news then it's the true gospel and we don't need to use that word because now we have found what i call and what we call in q the ungodlike god because the model of his being and the nature of his existence and the way that he works is not according to that model of the gods are angry the gods must be appeased you'll be rewarded for doing good you'll be punished for doing bad he hacks in an ungodlike way according to the understanding of history and culture so the next word church uh, the word church is nowhere in the original text of the bible it was introduced in uh, in 1556 that's the first recorded mention of this by a presbyterian follower of john calvin by the name of theodore betzer and um, he influenced a guy called william whittington who published the geneva bible in 1557 
and he used for the first time in that Bible the word church. So it's only appeared since 1557 and then it was from an incorrect translation. I'll try and explain why I think that Theodore Betts suppressed this process of the word church. But the problem is the word church comes from a Greek word that appears nowhere in the Bible. The word church is a, is a, is a loose English translation of the Greek word kairidikon. And that word never occurs or appears in the original text of the Bible. So you say, well, why would that happen? Well, I think the problem is this is an accurate word to describe what Christianity had become, uh, but was never what it was meant to be. Because that word church, which the Scots will know it as kirk, came from the Old English kirka and goes all the way back to the Greek kyridikon. Uh, that word church actually means a religious meeting place. So you can see why it became introduced by... Theodore Betzer and why Whittington took it on in his translation of the Bible. The problem being that actually it was a very accurate translation of what uh, the church had become, what Christianity had become, but it was not a truthful reflection of what it was meant to be. So even the word church that we use, and I know you know, our broad use of it now has maybe softened some and we use it as a, a noun to describe uh, like a building that we go to. But the problem was this this word was was describing now this that Christianity was was um, uh, a group of religious people in a religious meeting place. And that's never what it was meant to be. You can see how the mischief unfolds in the misrepresenting of one of the most famous and well-known statements of Jesus. In Matthew 16, 18, 19, many people will know this. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, well, that's not what he said. Uh, he did not say, I will build my church, because that's, I will build my religious meeting place. See, see, so, but, but that's what it had become. And unfortunately, that's often what it is now, just a religious meeting place where religious people touched by Christianity's message meet together. It was never meant to be that. So when Jesus, this revolutionary uh, character, this, this subversive who challenged religious structures, didn't come to start a religion, when he said that, there's no way that he said, I'll build my church. That takes us down a wrong line and empowers the wrong thinking. Jesus actually used a very specific word in his statement, which is the Greek word ekklesia. Now that got shifted to church, kairidikon, religious meeting place. But ekklesia is the word that was most used in the original text of the Bible. Now you say, well, I don't really believe the Bible. and don't. Well, listen, there's some tremendous wisdom in there. And if you get to the root of it, you'll see what it says is quite fascinating because this word ecclesia is used 116 times and all but three in since 1517 have been translated church. 
Now, I appreciate if you go around saying uh, I'm part of the Ecclesia, you're going to be looked on as a bit of a religious nut. So I'm not suggesting that you go around throwing this word around. But I am saying you should understand that this word is very critical because it would have been shocking to, to the religious culture who heard Jesus say it, but understood by everyone who heard it. Now, it loses its impact to us a little bit today because... We don't understand what it was that Jesus was saying. So when you put that in its context and in its culture, it would have been absolutely shocking because these religious people are hearing Jesus not say, I will build my temple. They could have got their heads around that idea. And it was a common idea, religion, well, you build a temple for, for God. He didn't say, I'll build my synagogue, which the Jewish people present would have understood and said, yeah, we get this. Okay, he's going to build his synagogue. He's going to build his temple. But he didn't use either of those words. He used this Greek word, I will build my ecclesia. Why? Because he wanted to draw thinking away from the religious institutionalized model. And today I struggle and we struggle at Q because we're trying all the time to draw thinking away from the religious institutionalized model that I think has damaged what this amazing thing is supposed to be of those who have attached to, followed and received and accepted the message of the Christ and been, been introduced to the ungodlike God uh, that he came to reveal. See, if, if you look up this word, um, ecclesia in a religious publication like a commentary or, or whatever you'll read things like a gathering of God's people the called out ones the elect of God the congregation that's mischievous because ecclesia never had anything to do with religion it had nothing to do with an expression of people meeting to do anything for, with, by or in the name of any God. It was a non-religious statement. But we have taken it and we have we have sanitized it into a religious thing. And then, of course, in in uh, in, in 15, whatever, uh, decided, well, we'll just change it. We'll just slip the word church in there and people will think it's a different word and become a religious meeting place. See, see, I. I, I could label that, that, that that's part of the mislead and the mischief. This word ecclesia can be traced back at least five centuries before Christ. It's a Greek word, common in Greek culture, understood within the Greek world, of which that Roman world and that Jewish world were part in that time so when Jesus used it it would have been subversive it would have been radical it would have been revolutionary what's he going to build a temple no because it's an ungodlike god is he going to build a synagogue no because he's not trying to start the new religion he's going to build an ecclesia so in the minds of those people it would have been very clear now an ecclesia which I said can be traced back five centuries before Christ in Greek culture what it was was a gathering of ordinary people called together in one place to form a legislative body empowered to make decisions on just about everything. That's what an ecclesia was. That's what Jesus was going for. Not another religion, but by his call, the gathering of ordinary people. So how did you qualify for an ecclesia? You qualified by being ordinary. 
It was for ordinary people and ordinary people were to come together in one place, not necessarily a temple, not necessarily a synagogue, not necessarily what we would call a church building. But they were able to form a legislative body empowered to make decisions on just about anything. That's what was in the mind of Jesus when he said, I'll build my church, not what most people have in their mind today. It's also interesting that an ecclesia had no global connotation. It was not about we'll expand this into the whole world, although I'm glad that the message of Jesus has expanded into the world. And I'm glad that we have the opportunity here to, to share something of the impetus of what I believe is the root of the true understanding of the purpose of the Christ and uh, and the deity that he that he was a flesh manifestation of. It was no global connotation. It, it, it had a local specific application. It was about it was about the local thing. One map build see building an empire. It wasn't about building an empire. So it's hardly surprising then that Jesus said the gates of Hades, which was which was very again understood by that culture as as um well, I won't go into all of it. Uh but basically it was for them where where demon spirits and 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 uh uh, harmful powers came from he said that the harmful things that the destructive things will not prevail against this they will not overpower this if you'll gather in this way and become this kind of people uh, then you will uh, ensure that this whole death wicked destructive thing can be dismantled taken apart and uh, life can replace it See, church, the word church gave power to the institution rather than empowering those within it. And that's been the history. It elevated the leaders to emperors and kept the people as slaves. It's still happening, but just more subtly, using modern methods to maintain the same manipulation. Could talk about that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to leave it to you to think that one through. So that's gospel, that's church. The third one, hell. You say, how can you speak about these three important things in about 30 minutes? Well, I can and I'm going to because I'm here to stimulate you and cause you to think I want you to be left with questions probably more than answers. Hell, okay. I'm sure there'll be many listening to me now saying don't go there. Apologies for the pun. Um, maybe I should quit while I'm ahead as I've discovered that even raising the question of the interpretation of hell in mainstream Christianity can lose you friends and influence quicker than you can say, what if, and I've personally experienced that, but I'm going to go there today and take a risk with your goodwill towards me. See, hell is nowhere in the original languages of the Bible. You would think the way it's been banded around in Christianity and in the expression of what might be the doctrine and beliefs um, that it's just a done deal but actually hell is nowhere in the original languages of the Bible it's an English word used to translate several of the Greek and Hebrew terms and again this is where for me the mischief comes in because you know I just thought hell was hell and the Bible talked about hell and hell was hell when actually it, it was our, the, the word hell was introduced to translate um, other words, four of them in, in total, uh, three in Greek and one in Hebrew. And uh, it was used to translate the word Gehenna, 
which is a Greek word. Uh, that was called hell in this new word. It was labelled hell. Hades, which was the Greek word for for um, uh, death and the grave. Okay, it was the grave. Sheol, which was the Hebrew equivalent of, of death and the grave. And one word that she used once, Tartarus, which is a Greek word borrowed from Greek mythology, um, which is all about uh, uh, the underworld that was lower than, than hell, where, where there was that extra realm and level of, of punishment of demagogues and uh, whatever. And that's only used one time. But all those four words are translated in our versions of the Bible as hell which is an invented word. So, so see, see, the problem is all of these would have been understood by the listener when used. So when Jesus used the word Gehenna, which was a literal place, it was a place where dead carcasses were kept. It was a place of defeat. It was a place uh, where fires were kept burning because it was the rubbish tip. It was a place where worms don't die. Some of these you'll get familiar because it was a garbage dump. It was a place where the fires never go out because they're always kept burning to try and sanitize and get rid of the garbage that's in the place and the carcasses of animals that would have been thrown in there uh, and all kinds of stuff. And it's a place where wild dogs would hang around and there would be howling and gnashing of teeth from the dogs. You see how when you put in a specific interpretation, some of the statements that we have interpreted in other ways readily fit into the understanding of what the people would have heard at the time because Jesus didn't talk about hell he talked about Gehenna so they understood the state of Gehenna what it would be like to be in Gehenna and what it might mean for them as a literal place in a literal time even now um, same with Hades and Sheol and uh, of course this one word Tartarus all of these would have been understood is my point by the listener when used at that time in the culture and would not have meant to them what our post-medieval Greek philosophical Augustinian Dante described version of hell has become. It would not have meant that to them. So why did the translators make up a word? The word hell is derived from an old English word um, and first pops up around 725 AD or CE, however you wish to put it. So we didn't even have that word until 725 AD or CE. So, so we didn't have that word until 700 years after Jesus was talking to these people that we translated and used the word hell or, or when Paul was talking or any of those who don't incidentally use the word. Um, why? So why did the translators make up that word? Well, I believe because to use the originals... Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, would not have allowed the departure from reality that those developing the idea of hell wished to promote. It would have kept you locked in to an understanding that would not have let you go to, for example, where Dante's Inferno would take you or some of these medieval um, thought through philosophical Augustinian promoted uh, beliefs that actually are more Greek influenced than God influenced. Uh, so, 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 why am I telling you all this? Particularly, some would say foolishly brief or um, or briefly foolish, but the word foolish in there. 
and maybe hoping I would be brief so we can get away from this. Uh, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you it to try and make you think about these words. I'm telling you to try and make you think that as we look at what is the essence of this thing that should be good news, that should empower ordinary people, that should allow us to have a proper understanding of what are the consequential issues within life, but also what may be the untruths that are used to threaten uh, and control, I'm trying to make you think. Because the news is good, graced with exceeding goodness. And it's news because it proposes an ungodlike God who doesn't fit the mould and can't be boxed in. The outlook is promising when ordinary people celebrate the specialness of their ordinariness and begin to see what can be achieved when they come to the revelation of who they truly are. The end, with all its manipulative threat, may not be what we have been led to believe it is. And maybe love really is stronger than the grave and sin and death and wins in a most alarmingly wonderful way. In the words of John Lennon, you may say I'm just a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Maybe someday you'll come and join us and the world will live as one. Or in the words of Jesus, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Anyhow, the truth is out. You must choose what you do with it. I love you. I'll catch you again later. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash QChurchYork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.